This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Fraser Nelson and Isabel Hardman. Well, there's only one story in town today and that is the revelations that are coming out about Prince Harry's book. Fraser, are you going to be reading it? I think I've read so many extracts that when it comes out, I'll have read pretty much everything. I had actually thought this would be a dud, this book. I thought he'd have said everything that has to be said. I was wrong. There is nothing, there's nothing more of substance to be said, but there is no end of tittle-tattle. So if you can imagine, not just Harry, but anybody in the world, if you just spill the dirtiest secrets about your family, you'd always have something to tell. So we've had um, Necklace Gate, where he reveals that um, his brother William had a fight with him and um, broke his necklace. Then we've we've had um, the news that they're both circumcised. I'm sure Prince William's thrilled. The world now knows about that particular detail, and on it goes. Now, to me, this uh, and there's also to me the rather just the troubling um, way that Harry talks. I wouldn't say boasts, but he talks about how he killed 25 Taliban in Afghanistan. Now, to me, that was a revelation quite distinct from all of the others. The others were just very weird. Um, tittle-tattle, of course, which, as he knows, um, the, the press and the public will, will absolutely suck up. It's funny that somebody who has spent the last um, 15 years complaining about invasions of privacy should then go to invade the privacy of his own members of his family, and including whether they're circumcised or not. But that's, you know, that's um, Harry's self-incrimination. But for any soldier to go about talking about a kill ratio... It's, it's very unusual, not just for um, for a royal, but for anybody who's done military service. And we, he's actually been condemned by all people from the, the Taliban themselves. Um, in his book, he was, says that he regarded them as, as chess pieces there to be taken out, that he didn't feel good or bad about killing them. They just had to be done there when he was in his helicopter. The Taliban have responded. Anas Hakani has uh, said, Mr. Harry, the ones you killed were not chess pieces. They were humans. They had families who were waiting for their return. Now, I have to say that Mr. Hakani's got a point. It is very strange and pretty discomforting to hear anybody talk, really, about about war in this way, about taking out X many people. I mean, there's... you know, um, And I don't think Harry's doing himself any favours. In fact, right now... Almost with every fresh disclosure, he's making himself look worse and the rest of the royals look better um, because they are being quite restrained. And the Queen's response, recollections may vary, it remains the three words, the only three words anybody from the other side of the royal family needs to say about this whole affair. Yeah, I mean, Isabel, obviously, you know, there's a political element to the royals, of course, but they're a family too. And you were just saying before you came on about um, the fact that Harry chose to reveal what the Queen's deathbed was like. I mean, that is something else we haven't seen before, that level of intrusion, right? I mean, it's not something we really see generally in British society, is it? And and rightly so. I think most people view moments like deathbeds and so on as being sort of beautifully private and things that you might share with people who you're very close to, not, you know, not even something you, I don't know, post on your Facebook, let alone if you had the outlet, publish it all around the world. I had quite a strong visceral reaction to that when I saw that this morning, I have to say. But it, it, I think it 
the way this book, I mean, you know, hats off to his ghostwriter for getting all of this stuff out of him. Although I suspect Harry is one of those people who's probably quite easily led by whoever is sort of there with him at the time, uh, given he seeks to blame the, the Nazi costume on other people as well, almost as though he just sort of does whatever the good idea of somebody else at the time is. But I think what it shows is that he doesn't actually want privacy. He wants adulation and he's mistaken the two words that actually he's perfectly fine for people to know huge amounts of detail about him um, so long as they're telling him he's great because I don't think you can share this much stuff and then think that you are in any way entitled to privacy. I wonder if there's a Westminster element to this, both of you, which is um, you've already seen Bob Seeley talking about who he might put down an amendment in order to strip them of their titles. You've seen Tim Loughton, the backbench MP, tweet this week that uh, Prince Harry should shut the F up. And this morning we've got a piece on Spectator's website by Adam Holloway, a former soldier and an MP, who said, is there any confidence he will not break or any discretion that he will now not now show in return for money? And, I mean, do you think perhaps that there are going to be these calls in Westminster to do something? In a way, I hope not, because this has really got nothing to do with government or, or politicians. And that's not to say that politicians will always be able to resist the urge of commenting on whatever they think the big story is of the time. Um, Adam Holloway, we, a Tory MP, but we basically asked him to write that piece because we knew that he'd been a former serviceman himself. And we wanted to get a, a serviceman to talk about the strange notion about how, you know, the, why it is that nobody returning from war goes around counting how many people they killed. So we thought, so I can't really blame him for wading in when we begged him to write the article. But I don't... Um, now, Bob Seeley's idea of it requires a, an act of Parliament to strip them of the House of Sussex thing. I would be inclined to simply not to react to the Harry and Meghan Netflix thing. I mean, what, what they're doing here is that they're... This is the problem with the big royal family. Prince Charles has always thought this, that if you have too many royals, they're not going to behave with that's core in which the public expects from royals. You can't expect everybody to be as the Queen was. The Queen gave her life to public service. She never ventured her own opinion on things. She always was seen to be um, serving unfashionable charities, having holidays in places nobody envied, like Balmoral, etc. But you can't really expect all members of the royal family to be so restrained, so in which case they have to exit the royal family. This is what Prince Charles believed. He's completely right. But the problem is, once you exit, what do you do for a living? Now, the problem here is you've got Harry and Meghan. What they want to do for a living is exploit their celebrity and exploit their royal status. Therefore, the Netflix series, the um, which got reported 10 million bucks for that, the book, all of these things are part of the business machine because this is how they intend to make a living. So what we're seeing now isn't really about score settling or about a quest for the truth. This is simply the House of Sussex business model. And it's um, one of diminishing returns, I think. I think Harry has really jumped the shark in this book. Once Spare comes out, I really don't think there can possibly be anything else he's got to say that will cause embarrassment to himself or his family. You think he will have exhausted absolutely everything. And it's rather sort of strange that he's doing so. I mean, the, the American press are quite hostile to him this morning, which is a, a, a bit of a change. Also, there's an opinion poll come out showing that the British public are now far less sympathetic to Harry and Meghan after the last events of the last few weeks. So I think what we're seeing here is um, a business, quite visibly, is a money-making enterprise, and one which Prince Harry does not come out of very well. So I think he's fairly quickly expending the last parts of his capital. 
Um, and Isabel, this morning the junior doctors are threatening a three-day strike with no A&E cover and the British Medical Association has told the government that junior doctors would strike for 72 hours if it's supported in the ballot that opens next week. How does this change the dynamic? Uh, is that going to affect the strikes? Will this affect public opinion at all? What do we see coming up around the horizon on this? Well, I think it's interesting. Obviously, junior doctors have been on strike reasonably recently and that they walked out um, over the contract negotiations back in 2016. And back then, that was partly about pay, but also about how they felt treated and their morale. And there were a number of mistakes that were made politically back then by Jeremy Hunt, then the health secretary, where he sort of insulted their professional pride Um and I think he'd probably say now that that he regrets the way in which he conducted some of um some of his sort of uh, broadcast comments and so on. But um, we already have a situation with the nurses where they feel as though their intelligence is being insulted by Rishi Sunak and Steve Barclay saying that their door is open, as though the nurses haven't been walking through it. Um, because actually, once once they get through it, it's or you can talk about all the other things apart from the thing you're actually on strike about, which is pay. Now, this uh, threatened junior doctor's strike is a, is a ballot that's opening on Monday um, from the British Medical Association, which is their union. And it's over their pay deal from 2023 onwards. Uh, obviously, they want something that will um, rise above inflation. Uh, the government is saying, no, that's unaffordable, which is the line on, on all the different um, public sector strikes. Uh, as with nurses, doctors command huge public sympathy and trust and when you get into a battle with them it it doesn't tend to um particularly well for a politician but um one of my sort of hunches here is that public sympathy is even more likely to hold because the NHS is in such a state that it's very easy to make these um debates and over the strikes about the general state of the NHS as well as about pay rises and a sense that you know these staff are walking out because they feel uh, as though they're being forced to work in unacceptable conditions uh, unable to treat patients in the way that they um would want to and that's when the government really ends up on a you know on a losing streak because whether or not staff are on strike the NHS is quite visibly in meltdown at the moment people who've you know been in emergency settings over the past few weeks would say that they've you know seen things that they they wouldn't want to to have seen in their lifetime um in A&Es and so on and so I think that's why it's particularly potent because it it isn't really in the public debate about pay it's about the state of the health service this week, we've seen um, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer both give good speeches. I think the best speech was given by Rachel Reeves introducing um, Keir Starmer. And she was asking a pretty simple question. Are you better off than you were 10 years ago? Do you think the country is in a better state? Do you think public services are better run? Now, of course, um, I remember that being Ronald Reagan's 1980 question. He won the election by quite rightly saying to people, are you better off than you were four years ago under Carter, if not vote for Reagan? Now, if you're going to say that things were better off in this country 10 years ago or 12 years ago, that is a pretty devastating indictment of 12 years of um, Conservative Prime Ministers. And I looked up the figures and it is like, compare now to 10 years ago, 
lots of things are so much worse. We've got a waiting list, NHS waiting list, almost three times the size. We've had, um, we've got people now to work benefits um, at a greater number now than there were at any point during the Labour years. You did get great um, reforms by Conservative um, school um, ministers, but they've been wiped out by lockdown. So, when we're in a situation now where you can't really tell much of a difference between strikes or not strikes because the public services are in such a mess anyway, that really is quite a statement about whether the government is working. And in his speech, I think Rishi Sunak gave a phrase which I think he will come to regret. He was saying, either this government is working for you or it's not. Either we're delivering or we're not. And right now, when you look at the strikes, the non-strikes, and the lack of real noticeable difference between the two, you have to ask yourself, is this Conservative government working for the country? And if you conclude that it's not, then you can see a door to number 10 wide open for Keir Starmer. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening to Copy House Shots.